Bollocks. I forgot to switch the recording on. Put this space suit on, wipe away those tears, Grandma. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. This is a show about writing where you, the listeners, send in the first pages of your novels and I, the uh, speaking man, say opinions about them. I finished my jury service this week and it was a pretty profound experience. I'm still working out what I think, but, well, experiencing the justice system from the inside, seeing how arbitrary it can be, there's not much comfort in learning how the sausage is made. Which isn't to say that people within the system aren't sincerely working towards the fair administration of justice, just that the system as it stands is terrifyingly random. As a juror, you get locked in a deliberation room. The room's locked from the outside until you all reach a verdict. And no member of court staff is allowed to sit in on that process. They're not allowed to ask you anything about what's going on except have you reached a verdict. I'm not allowed to tell you what we discussed in that room, which means... Of course, that the centre of our justice system is this Skinner box where a bunch of randos make a decision that could take away someone's liberty, could prevent them from seeing their children grow up, or could let a murderer go unpunished. And there's no system for checking whether those people even understand the law. No oversight at all. We just hope that they do. And that's a bit like publishing. You can work as hard as you like on your magnum opus, but in the end, no matter how superb your novel is, your fate is probably going to rest in the hands of a dozen random twats. Does this particular agent decide they like your work? Does this editor choose to invest in you? Do the three people on the prize panel end up picking your book as their compromise winner after disagreeing with each other's first choices? Twelve people can make the difference between a book's finding no audience and a book being a smash hit. Which isn't to say that publishing isn't full of people who sincerely love books. It is, and most importantly, just because publishing is not a perfect meritocracy, that does not mean that your novel is a work of genius that has been suppressed by the cabal. Sorry, it's probably just a bit shit. There's a whole discussion to be had here about self-publishing. Frankly, I don't feel qualified to have it on my own. I mean, no one's qualified to have a discussion on their own, are they? That's a bit weird. But I think it'd be worth talking about, especially as it makes people so angry, so I'm going to wait until I've got a guest on who actually knows what the fuck they're on about. Do I have a neat point about all of this? No. As I said, I'm still processing my experience. All I'm trying to say is that publishing is arbitrary and messy, but don't use that as an excuse. Right, on with the show. If you'd like to submit your own work for a future episode, wait until the end and I'll explain how. You'll find a written version of this extract in the show notes on my website, timclairpoet.co.uk. This extract is untitled and it's by a person known as Ben. The raucous blare of repetitive, brain-numbing music sent the crowd into a frenzied rave. Bright red, green and yellow lights blinked from above and below. If Jack had not already been working there for two years, he would have thought he was caught in the limbo between an LSD overdose and a slideshow of kaleidoscope images. A pair of cackling women stumbled into the bar. One in a gaudy scarlet dress fumbled into her purse before slamming a handful of coins and notes onto the counter in front of Jack. Two thundercrackers, she slurred after a flick of her puffy, pale blonde hair. Jack turned to the shelves of liquors and booze behind him and sent his hands into the meticulously organised collection of drinks. A few moments later, he turned back to hand the women their cocktails. They nabbed the drinks from his hands and wobbled off into the crowd, their laughs like the screeching of a fork across a plate. Jack returned to the counter behind him to return the drinks to their rightful positions on the shelf. Two kinds of vodka, rum, whiskey and soda water. A local mixture designed to ignite the throats of drunkards, idiots and thrill-seekers. 
the lights dimmed, heralding a change of song and a brief lull in the nightclub's raves. Jack seized the opportunity and quickly shoveled to the water tap away from the dance floor. That end of the bar was much less crowded, visited only by the occasional sober loner. Right, here's my thoughts. The raucous blare of repetitive brain-numbing music sent the crowd into a frenzied rave. Perspective or point of view is a concept so easy to forget as a writer. We think of setting, we think of plot, we think of character, but so often we forget to ask, whose story is it? And I concede there's a blurring. Some of this comes under the fuzzy rubric of tone. But when the story is being delivered by a third-person limited narrator, that is, a narrator who isn't one of the characters, but whose knowledge is limited to that of a single character within the scene, when you have that kind of narrator, every choice that narrator makes reflects on the scene's main character. Let's read that opening line again. The raucous blare of repetitive, brain-numbing music sent the crowd into a frenzied rave. Raucous. Blare repetitive, brain-numbing, frenzied, sent the crowd into a rave. If I threw these words at you without context, would your first associations be experienced nightclub bartender or Andy Rooney monologue? Gee, life sure is cockamamie, Grandpa. These kids with their ecstasy capsules and their rah-rah skirts slicking their hair back with brill cream and losing their minds to jive bands and the sonorous allure of the alto lute. I mean, how old is Jack supposed to be? 85? If you think this sounds like the convincing inner monologue of a bartender, I put it to you that you have never been in a nightclub or partaken of one of their delicious cocktail drinks. What then you're going for with this first line, Ben, hello, is a jaded barman, right? He hates his job. He loathes his customers, which is totally fine from a compositional point of view. You're allowed to write that character. You're allowed to tell that story. But look again at your choice of adjectives. Raucous, repetitive, brain-numbing, frenzied. For nouns, blare, music, crowd, rave. Every single one is abstract. There's no chair, no rhinoceros, no aquamarine, no burnt. All we're getting is opinion, value judgments. Now, it's okay to have some editorialising like this. It's almost impossible to have none. But when the narrative voice is entirely abstraction, you're putting a screen between us and the action. P.S. It probably sounds odd to describe nouns like music and crowd as, as value judgments or opinions, right? A crowd is a crowd. Well, yes and no. Fundamentally, it's a piece of shorthand. There's a bunch of humans and you're clumping them together into a concept, a crowd. A crowd on its own doesn't offer a strong visual. If you say the word a crowd, what do you picture? Whereas if we have context, say a football match, a gig, a bread van, a vicious tyrant's political rally, then that crowd gets a bit more flavour. But it's filler in a way that a single black miniature schnauzer is not. Now, of course, you could pursue this argument ad absurdum, yes all language is abstraction. Yes, when I say Kevin, I'm creating a just out out of a pancreas here and a brain there and bones wrapped in skin and a bunch of experiences. So abstract and concrete here are two poles on a spectrum. But as an author, you want to be pushing your work towards concreteness, or as I never tire of calling it, crunchy specificity. <clears throat> Bright red, green and yellow lights blinked from above and below. Yeah, again, this doesn't read like an insider's take on club culture. This sounds like the reconstruction of an historian a thousand years into the future where most of humanity has been consigned to the protein vats in a sexless immortal elite rule from within silver orbs that rest in the corona of the sun. Oh, fuck, that would be so great. This is, 
implicitly Jack's point of view. Why is he describing things in such general terms as if seeing them for the first time? If he's been here a while, what's he going to notice? Well, as someone who worked 40 to 50 hour weeks of split shifts behind a bar for two years, I can tell you, you notice what's different that night. You notice whether it's busy or quiet for a Monday. You notice when the regulars come in. If a light's broken, you notice that. He certainly wouldn't perceive the music as undifferentiated blaring. He'd know the track, probably so intimately that it followed him round out of work hours. If Jack had not already been working there for two years, he would have thought he was caught in the limbo between an LSD overdose and a slideshow of kaleidoscope images. No. No, he wouldn't. He'd think he was seeing some, by the sounds of it, very pedestrian disco lights. They're not some niche urban cryptotech. Toddlers dance to them in village halls in Yatton. And just so you know, Ben, you don't have to overdose on LSD to see some dancing lights. LSD is a hallucinogen. The very gentle scenario you describe is, if anything, an underdose. If the high note started tasting of spoiled cottage cheese, then his nipple secreted angry phantoms may polling round him, insisting that God hates square things, so he must smash all the ice cubes with a fire extinguisher, and then time began to freeze. Yes, he might plausibly compare that to an LSD overdose. But what you're actually describing is a very mundane, very boring bit of cheap lighting that he has seen every night he's worked here for two years. So you're going, he would have found it awe-inspiring. If he didn't which is both untrue and an awful way to describe a scene, giving us all the ways the protagonist would have reacted if he was someone else. A pair of cackling women stumbled into the bar, one in a gaudy scarlet dress fumbled into her purse before slamming a handful of coins and notes onto the counter in front of Jack. Two thundercrackers, she slurred after a flick of her puffy, pale blonde hair. So, I lump all this together because... Jack comes off as a bit of a judgmental a-hole in these lines, which isn't necessarily problematic in itself. You can write him as that. But you're laying it on a bit thick, Ben. Cackling, stumbled, gaudy, fumbled, slurred, puffy. And oh, she's blonde. So it's this unkind stereotype, asking for a drink which manifestly does not sound like a believable drink. Why? What purpose does this exchange serve? I don't get any sense that this is a real person and there's no tension in the scene. Look, here's a quick extract from the first chapter of George Orwell's Keep the Aspidistra Flying. The protagonist, Gordon Comstock, is a prime a-hole and poet Monquet working in a bookshop. He judges the living shit out of everyone who comes in. Ping! The shop bell. Gordon turned round. Two customers for the library. A dejected, round-shouldered lower-class woman, looking like a draggled duck nosing among garbage, seeped in, fumbling with a rush basket. In her wake hopped a plump little sparrow of a woman, red-cheeked, middle-middle class, carrying under her arm a copy of the Foresight Saga, title outwards, so that passers-by could spot her for a highbrow. Gordon had taken off his sour expression. He greeted them with the homey, family doctor geniality reserved for library subscribers. Good afternoon, Mrs Weaver. Good afternoon, Mrs Penn. What terrible weather. Now, clearly, these are two women rendered in unflattering terms, but they're rendered in specific, differentiated unflattering terms. Look at the information we get about Comstock. He calls one lower class, the other middle middle class. So he's a snob. He knows his books. We get a specific title and what he thinks of it, or rather, why he thinks she's chosen it. One's a duck, 
one's a sparrow. So although Orwell uses two metaphors, they're linked. So really they're a single continuous conceit. When I finished reading Keep the Aspidistra Flying, I wept. Who knows why I connected with this story of a bitter, fragile, philandering, dead-skint poet with dreams above his station. It will remain forever a mystery. Orwell didn't think much of the novel himself, or so he claimed, but I heartily recommend it. So you see, Ben, I'm not saying you can't have Jack think nasty, withering thoughts about two female customers, but they have to be nasty, withering barman thoughts about the two customers. He has to size them up, their relationship, their age, their dress sense, etc., in a way appropriate to his character and job. And, most importantly of all, what he thinks about them has to be interesting. Jack turned to the shelves of liquors and booze behind him and sent his hands into the meticulously organised collection of drinks. A few moments later, he turned back to hand the women their cocktails. Wait, what? I must have blacked out for a second because I'm sure I missed the section where you showed us him actually doing his fucking job. One, mixing a cocktail does not take moments. You can't even do the whole thing with your back to the customer. The soda water comes from a hose, usually, which is on the bar, unless he's spritzing lukewarm soda water from a siphon and this is set at the 1893 World's Fair in which case his bafflement at mediocre dance floor lighting suddenly makes sense. Two, you have to at least fake like you've done your research. You can't just jump cut whenever your character's job involves something specialised. It'd be like writing a police procedural where you wrote I'm placing you under arrest on suspicion of the murder of Evelyn Hiller, said D.I. Barmer. He did some policey stuff and... Hours later, the defendant was in the dock at the Crown Court. No one is fooled by that. Well, some people will be fooled. Stupid people. But is the standard you want to hold your work to really just stupid people might not notice all its flaws? Don't get me wrong, many authors have made a career out of just that tactic. But I reckon you can do better. The purpose of this show has never been to help people create publishable work. That is a low and hugely subjective bar. Our purpose is to help you create the best work you possibly can. And I think that's a high bar because I think you, Ben, hello, are capable of writing superb work. I genuinely believe that. I'm not just blowing smoke up your bottom. So you've got to put the time in. You've sent me a 250 word scene. Where in this first page is the hook? Where's the tension? Where's the conflict? Where's the promise you're making to the reader? Where's the mystery that makes us think, hang on, what on earth can this all mean? What's the deal with Jack? Why is he story worthy? And when exactly does his story start? Okay, so he's at work, he's bored. So fucking what? And you know what, Ben? I bet if you solve the story problems, some of the style problems will clear up too. Baggy, vague writing almost always arises out of characters derping around in the wings, waiting for the plot to start. Find the point where the poo hits the propeller. That's your opening. By all means, bemoan the tedium of tending bar, but don't recreate it. And that's that. If you'd like to submit your first page to be discussed on the show, go to my website, timclepert.co.uk, and click the link in the show notes to our submission guidelines. In summary, those guidelines are, one, send me the first 250 words of your novel or short story. Two, make them the absolute best they possibly can be. Three, don't freak out. I'm just a dude with a microphone. It's not a referendum on your right to exist as a human being. The implicit contract with this podcast is, if you like it, Share it with other people who you think might like it too. I can't know if you break that contract, of course, but you'll know. 
I want to get it out to as many people as possible because I enjoy doing it, and if it finds an audience, well, that will make me very happy indeed. Don't forget I have a novel out called The Honours. Seriously, go look at the cover on Amazon. Tell me that doesn't look exciting and or sexy. Until next time, maybe try doing your exercise when you wake up before breakfast. Then it's done.